Well, good morning. I hope that you have come ready to engage Psalm 110 with me this morning, uh, that you would open your minds and your hearts to what God is saying here, and that this psalm would bring comfort to those who are disturbed and perhaps also disturb those who are too comfortable. Let's pray as we open the word. Our Father in heaven, you teach us in your word that no one consulted you in creation. You didn't need to consult anyone as you created. Lord, you did it all by yourself. No one has taught you understanding. No one has taught you the pathway of justice or taught you knowledge. Because in you, Lord, is all knowledge and wisdom. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you as our teacher would come by your Holy Spirit and approach us, draw near to us, draw near to our hearts and our minds, teach us the things in Psalm 10 that you would, that it would be your pleasure to teach us. And Father, may we not leave this place later untransformed, but may you transform us even in this hour by the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, our focus in this last summer sermon on the Psalms is on Psalm 110, but I don't want to start there. If you have a Bible, please open it and come with me to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And the reason we're starting with Mark 12 today is that the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this chapter give us what I would call the interpretive key to Psalm 110. What is Psalm 110 really about? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark 12. I want us to focus in these opening moments on verses 35 to 37 of Mark 12. Jesus is teaching here in the Jerusalem temple, and he asks a question as he teaches. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? In other words, what Jesus asks here is, how can the scribes, the religious and intellectual elite of Judaism, how can they claim that the Messiah, the Christ, is merely a descendant of David? That's the question. Jesus continues in verse 36. David himself... In the Holy Spirit declared, and then Jesus is going to quote from the first verse of our psalm, from Psalm 110, verse 1. But just before we get to the quote, note well what Jesus says here. He says that David spoke in Psalm 110 in the Holy Spirit. That is, David, the human author wrote Psalm 110 under the inspiration and under the authority of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. 
Thus, what David wrote in Psalm 110 has the weight of God about it. It is inspired scripture. David wrote it in the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is merely a descendant of David? After all, David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, declared, watch what he declared, the Lord, that is, Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is, to my master, Yahweh said to my master, do you see this? Remember, David wrote Psalm 110.1 that Jesus is quoting here. And David said, in that first verse of Psalm 110, as he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, David said, I have a master over me. And Yahweh speaks to that master who is over me. Yahweh said to my master. David wrote this. David was the highest authority in the land of Israel. He was king. And yet David in Psalm 110.1 was saying, I have a master over me. And Yahweh speaks to that master. Yahweh said to my Lord. Let's go back to Jesus here in Mark 12, again, starting at verse 36. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, to my master, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus just quoted all of the first verse of Psalm 110. And then he notes in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, that is, David himself calls this master person Lord, who the Jews of the time of Jesus took as the Messiah descended from David because of all that is said of him in Psalm 110. David calls this descendant of his Lord. So, Jesus says, how is he his son? In other words, how is this descendant whom David calls Lord or calls master merely David's descendant? What's Jesus getting at? Jesus is getting at the fact that the Messiah, who we know and he knew was none other than himself, was not merely a descendant of David. No, the Messiah was David's Lord. And David called him Lord in Psalm 110. The Messiah, in fact, was much more than just a descendant of David. The Messiah, after all, was the son of who? God. So then as we dive into Psalm 110 today, we have it on the authority of Jesus Christ that the one being addressed in Psalm 110 by Yahweh is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whom David called Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about a thousand years before Christ was born in a manger. Mind-bending? 
With that as an introduction to our psalm, let's go to the psalm itself, to Psalm 110. Notice very carefully that at the top of the psalm we have those words, a psalm of David. Jesus just affirmed for us very clearly that David wrote Psalm 110 under the inspiration of the Spirit, and we should also note, just in passing, that every manuscript of Psalm 110 that has come down to us also has this title, a Psalm of David, over top of it, so we can be absolutely sure that it was David himself who wrote Psalm 110. Verse 1, the verse that Jesus quotes in Mark 12, the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is, Yahweh says to my Adonai, to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, who's writing the psalm, says that Yahweh is speaking to this person who David calls my Lord. Again, for the royal king, David, To have a master over him who Yahweh talks to is to imply that this master person is higher than royal somehow. Higher than the king of Israel. David is prophesying a Lord who sits in the council of Yahweh in heaven. And this Lord is being spoken to by Yahweh. And what we notice in the Hebrew of verse 1 is that the first two words are Naum Yahweh, or literally, utterance of Yahweh. This phrase, utterance of Yahweh, is a prophetic formula used all over the place in the Old Testament when Yahweh is speaking through his prophets. So as Psalm 110 begins, it has the flavor of a prophetic utterance or a prophetic oracle. Utterance of Yahweh to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now to sit in the Old Testament is oftentimes a posture of honor and a posture of majesty. In places like Deuteronomy 17, 18, And Isaiah 10.13, kings sit on thrones. In places like Exodus 18.14 and Malachi 3.3, judges sit and they do their lofty work of judging from their seated position. The master or Lord of David in Psalm 110.1 is being asked by Yahweh to sit. And sit where? At Yahweh's right hand. The right hand was a place of power and a place of prestige. As Alan Ross in his commentary summarizes, sitting at the right hand of Yahweh means that this king, this Lord over David, was to be exalted to the power and dominion and honor of heaven itself. Now, friends, we've already let the cat out of the bag this morning. We've already pointed out how Psalm 110 is about none other than Jesus, the Messiah. Psalm 110 has David, king of Israel, claiming that this Messiah figure is Lord over him. And indeed, watch this, in Acts 2, verse 34, as Peter preaches, Peter says, 
and I'm paraphrasing here, Peter says in his sermon, David didn't ever ascend into heaven. But in Psalm 110, says Peter, David spoke of one who did ascend into heaven, to whom Yahweh said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What's Peter getting at? He's getting at the fact that Jesus, this Messiah who did ascend to heaven, to the right hand of Yahweh, is greater than David ever was. That's what he's getting at. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that after Jesus had made purification for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which, says the writer to the Hebrews, indicates the superiority of Jesus to angels as well. He's superior to David. He's superior to angels. Jesus finished his priestly task says Hebrews 10:11 and 10:12 Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins there's his priestly task and then did what sat down at the right hand of God fulfilling Psalm 110:1 and now says Hebrews 10:13 listen friends now the crucified risen ascended Jesus right now is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Which is exactly where the last half of Psalm 110.1 goes. Sit at my right hand, Son of God, until, blessed word, until I make your enemies your footstool. Until, until. That word until is so Massive here. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus sat down there at the right hand of the Father. And that's where the physical Jesus is right now, even as we sit in this sanctuary today. Jesus is in that position of royal power and authority and honor and splendor. He'll be there in what we call his session, in his position of royal power and authority at the right hand of Yahweh. He'll be there until, until the Father finally and completely and fully makes Jesus' enemies a footstool for Jesus' feet. Now, in ancient times, Military conquerors would put their foot on the neck of the defeated enemy. And so in Joshua 10, verse 24, Joshua encourages the leaders of Israel to come near and put their feet on the necks of the defeated kings. What was signified by that action of putting your foot on the neck of the enemy was your total victory. Over that enemy. And this practice of putting one's foot on the neck of the enemy gave rise to the expression, make one's enemies one's footstool. Friends, right now we need to understand this. Jesus Christ has all authority on, in heaven and on earth. Did you know that? 
And according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26, listen, it says, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The final phase of God's conquest over the principalities, powers, Satan, and death is coming. It is coming. His foot will be on the neck of sin, death, and the devil. The battle campaign that began with the first advent of Jesus will wrap up with his second advent. Now, is this not a mind-bending psalm? Let's go to verse 2, which is still addressing the Lord or the Master of David. It says... The Lord, that's Yahweh, sends forth from Zion, from the headquarters of his rule, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. A scepter is a royal staff or a royal rod that symbolizes kingly authority. And the Jesus of which our psalm speaks is said here to have not just a scepter, notice, but what kind of scepter? A mighty scepter, a mighty authority with which he not only subjugates his enemies, notice, but he rules in the midst of his enemies. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, admittedly, the Hebrew in much of this third verse is quite difficult. It is quite cryptic, actually. It's difficult for us to discern just exactly how we should bring the verse over into English. But I think that part of the general thrust of the verse is this, that the Lord or the king over David that the psalm is addressing and describing, this king named Jesus has a people. Amen? And those people of Jesus Messiah are an army that willingly serves the king having been transformed by God himself to be willing to serve the king. I think that one of the main ideas of verse 3 is this army of the king who are prepared to do the bidding of the king. Are you prepared to do the bidding of the king? Who are numerous, like dewdrops in the morning, prepared to do battle for the king. The 18th century pastor John Gill gave a lovely description of this army. He described the church as people who serve the king in every duty and ordinance, who part with their sins, who suffer the loss of all things for the king, who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him, who become free will offerings to the king, who cheerfully fight the king's battles under him, the captain of their salvation, being assured of victory 
And when they have fought the good fight and finished their course, these people are certain that the crown of life and glory will be theirs. Amen? Verse 3 is about the army of the king. Ultimately, this verse is about the church. But let's proceed to verse 4, because it's verse 4 that we really want to camp on for just a season here. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes this. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. That is, Yahweh has given a solemn oath that is unchangeable. And the oath is this, that you, the master figure in the psalm, the Lord figure, the Messiah figure, you, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What this verse is saying is that Yahweh, God of the universe, has sworn solemnly and unchangeably that the Messiah figure of Psalm 110 is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does this mean? Well, first of all, and again, we're doing work this morning, aren't we, with our minds and hopefully with our hearts? First of all, the facts about this person named Melchizedek, are as follows. Melchizedek first appears in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14, and then he promptly disappears for the rest of the Old Testament until we get to our verse, Psalm 110:4. after which Melchizedek disappears again until the book of Hebrews, where his name pops up in several places in chapters 5 through 7. In other words, there isn't a whole lot in the Bible concerning Melchizedek. What we know is this. The story of Melchizedek goes like this. Abraham's nephew Lot had been abducted, taken prisoner by four kings. Abraham and his allies defeated those four kings and they rescued Lot from his plight along with several other people. And then on the way back, as they're coming back from battle, the victorious Abraham is greeted by two kings. Again, all this is in Genesis 14. One king that greeted Abraham was the king of Sodom. And the other king that greeted Abraham was Melchizedek. King of Salem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, is also described in the text of Genesis 14, very importantly, as a priest of the Most High God. He comes and he greets Abraham with bread and wine. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham in that moment, saying this, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How does Abraham respond? Abraham responds immediately to Melchizedek by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything. But what we notice in those brief words of blessing that Melchizedek speaks over Abraham is that Melchizedek does what? He affirms God. He affirms 
the sovereign hand of God in the deliverance of Lot and the other people in battle, in the battle that Abraham has just won on the ground, God has been at work. Well, in vivid contrast to that, we have the other king that greeted Abraham that day, and that's the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes to Abraham with nothing in his hand, no bread, no wine. He just says, rather abruptly he says to Abraham, I don't know what kind of voice he had, (laughs) give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. The king of Sodom expresses no confidence in God winning the battle. In fact, he makes no reference to God at all, and and thereby he serves as a real contrast to the God-awareness of Melchizedek and to the kindness of the priest-king Melchizedek. Now, a few other facts about this Melchizedek person. His name, Melchizedek in Hebrew, means my king is righteous interestingly enough, or we could perhaps translate it king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And this king of righteousness, Melchizedek, is described in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem in the days before David conquered the place and made it, made it the holy city called Jerusalem. The word Salem means peace. So then just to sum up so far what we know about Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, is ruler in what would become Jerusalem. Melchizedek, the priest king, comes praising God as he meets Abraham, blessing Abraham and thereby Abraham's people, offering them sustenance. Melchizedek is a priest king praising God blessing Abraham and ruling over Jerusalem. Now listen. We go deeper. During the time when Melchizedek came blessing Abraham, the law of God had not yet been given in a formal sense. Moses had yet to arrive on the scene at this point in history. And so there was no law at least no codified law, as it would be codified later in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy. The law, when it came eventually, would express the fact, listen to this, it's important, that priests of God had to be Levites. While kings from David on down, at least kings that that God would put his stamp of approval on, Kings had to be from the line of Judah. But David, in Psalm 110.4, David who was from the tribe of Judah, David who was not and could not be a formal priest in Israel because David was not Levite, David says that his Lord, this Messiah King, who would descend, we need to understand, from his own Judaite lineage, this master Messiah figure from the tribe of Judah would be a priest, but not of Levite descent. Rather, he would be a priest after the order of 
Melchizedek. The big question here is, how could the Messiah of Israel, descended from David, how could he take the title priest but be a non-Levite? That would break the law of God, would it not? Priests had to be Levites. Now, I'm borrowing heavily here because this is a notoriously thorny problem in Bible interpretation. I'm borrowing heavily here from one of the most reputable New Testament scholars that there is today, who incidentally used to grace the sanctuary of this very church, Don Carson. Carson argues that what David is doing in Psalm 110.4, listen, is he's prophesying, in effect, he's prophesying that there would come a day future to David when the old covenant with its insistence on Levite priesthood would be eclipsed by a new covenant where there could be and would be a priest king not from Levi but from Judah. The law about Levite priesthood, David implies as he writes Psalm 110, would one day be obsolete. And Jesus from Judah would would come as the priest king, and he would come praising God, ruling in Jerusalem, crucified in the environs of Jerusalem, blessing Abraham, and blessing the people of Abraham. Jesus would be our true king of righteousness after the order of Melchizedek. And yes, it is true, Jesus ends the Levite priesthood officially, when in the environs of Jerusalem he performs the ultimate priestly act. He sacrifices himself. And his once-for-all sacrifice abolishes forever the need for continued Levitical sacrifices. Well, let's continue to glory in our priest king even further now by turning over to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 7, which, as I said earlier, gives us the last part of the biblical description of Melchizedek. In the first three verses of Hebrews 7, what we have there is a basic summary of Melchizedek's story. We've already outlined his story this morning. The writer of Hebrews says, this is Hebrews 7, first three verses. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. All right. But then notice in particular now what the writer to the Hebrews says at verse 3. He says, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. 
Notice that. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy. Yes, this is a reference to the fact that in Genesis, when Melchizedek is introduced, there's absolutely no record of his genealogy or his lineage, which is somewhat strange because usually in the Bible, when important figures, uh, important people are introduced, we are given their genealogy. But the Bible is silent on Melchizedek's roots. The Bible is silent on Melchizedek's birth, and it is also silent concerning his death. And so Melchizedek, listen, he appears in the scriptures. He appears like an eternal priest who lives forever. No recorded parentage, nothing about his beginning or his end. Well, Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek in that sense also. After all, what is the human lineage of Jesus? Technically, his father Joseph did not contribute to the coming into being of his child, Jesus. Jesus, we know from Scripture, is conceived how? From the Holy Spirit. As Don Carson puts it, the ultimate ancestry of Jesus is then grounded in the God of eternity without father, without mother. Jesus is the priest like Melchizedek in terms of a sort of obscured human parentage, but Jesus is actually the eternal high priest that Melchizedek never actually was. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. How is he better? Well, you see, as the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ never sinned, which cannot be said for any other priest or high priest in Israel or anywhere else. Nor can any other priest do what Jesus did, which was to offer himself as the lamb acceptable to God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is a true and better Melchizedek. Well, after all that, let's finish up Psalm 110. (laughs) And then at the end, we want to talk about what all this means for us tomorrow. On Monday, when we go back to work or when we go back to school, some of us. All I want to say here about verses 5 through 7 of the psalm, and I'll be brief, is this that here in these last verses of Psalm 110, what we have is a picture of God and his Messiah, listen, battling at the end of the age, God and his Messiah waging war as human history wraps up. Let's read the verses. The Lord, the Adonai in Hebrew, is at your right hand. What will he do? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Because we've proven that we can't do that very effectively, right? Human beings. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter Chiefs, or even better, looking at the original Hebrew, it's literally, listen, he will crush the head. 
singular. Crush the head. We'll come back to that. Over the wide earth. He'll stop and get a refreshment in the midst of this battling. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Notice in verse 5 that phrase, the day of his wrath. The day of his wrath. This is another way to say judgment day. This is the day of the Lord that both Joel and Amos talk about in their prophecies. These verses of Psalm 110 about God's day of wrath seem to match very well with what we have in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Let me read those verses to you. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, zoom in, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does what? He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, verse 3 of our psalm, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The last three verses of Psalm 110 seem to be describing the day still coming when the final overthrow of sin, death, and the devil will take place. That that phrase in verse 6, let's go back to that now, shatter chiefs over the wide earth, which we suggested is better translated from the Hebrew as crush the head over the wide earth, could very well be a reference to, listen, to the final, eternally permanent, glorious moment when the serpent will have his head irreparably crushed when he will be thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with sulfur, to quote Revelation 19.20, an event that was prophesied all the way back at Genesis 3.15. He will crush your head, serpent. So notice this. Psalm 110 takes us all the way from the moment when Jesus, the descendant of David and David's Lord, sat down at the right hand of God, his session after his crucifixion and resurrection. It takes us from that moment all the way to the end of history, doesn't it? To that time still out there ahead of you and I, when this priest king in the order of Melchizedek and his father will win the final cosmic battle and put the world to rights. Now friends, we need to understand that Psalm 110 is the passage from the Old Testament that gets quoted the most in the New Testament 
out of any other Old Testament passage. And we've seen many of those quotes today, of course, as we've jumped back and forth between the psalm and its use all over the place in the New Testament. The fact that Psalm 110 is quoted so abundantly in the New Testament should cause us, I think, as the New Testament church, should cause us to really pause over the psalm, to memorize the psalm. I read of a pastor uh, down in, I think he's in Louisville, yesterday, uh, who has memorized, get this, 42 books of the Bible. And there's an article about how he does it. I want to get on that train with him. It's amazing. Memorize the psalm. Meditate on the psalm, perhaps more than we do because it's used in the New Testament so much. It was so vital and so important to the writers of the New Testament, and thus I think it should be to us as well. But what have we seen in Psalm 110 today? Why should we memorize this psalm and pause over it and linger over it? We've beheld a vision in this psalm of our priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus, who comes doing what? Praising God and doing what? Offering blessing to Abraham and Abraham's offspring. That's you and that's me. Jesus, the eternal high priest who offers his sinless self as the sacrificial lamb to pay our sin debt in full to bring the blessing of God to the nations. We've seen that. And in Psalm 110, we've seen the crucified risen Son of God, seated at God's right hand where he is right now, waiting for God to make his enemies his footstool, waiting for the final cosmic battle, which, the psalm says, is a guaranteed victory for God. As we go back to work or school tomorrow, as we flip on the news and see more rioting in the United States, more discord in the world of humanity, more threats and saber-rattling on the international stage. We should remember Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, once it is digested into our bones, should bring us real comfort. As Alan Ross has put it so well, he says, no matter how evil or troubling the world might appear. The final outcome is certain. Amen? Amen. Yes. The final outcome of our human history, says God in Psalm 110, is certain. Ross continues, Those who believe in Jesus the Messiah and who have been sanctified by his sacrificial blood have nothing to fear. Did you know that? They will be with him as he comes to rule on earth, for they will be like the dew that suddenly appears in the morning when the shadows flee away and the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. My brothers and sisters, encourage one another and build one another up in the hope of Psalm 110, in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this week, live holy unto your priest king who is coming back. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, all we can do is worship and adore 
you because you are worthy of our praise. We bless you and we thank you for your promises. You have never failed on any of your promises. It is true. And Lord, the promises that we find in Psalm 110 about our history, about the history of this globe, are true. And so we pray this week, I pray for each one here, that hope and encouragement of the gospel would be theirs, uh, that they would deepen into peace, knowing that your promises are true. In Jesus' name, amen.